Our sermon today will be taken from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. This is the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kazanites, um, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus said the Lord. Amen. Thanks for saying all those complicated names. <laughs> I was actually playing a joke on you just now. That was, that was all pointed. Uh, guys, we are um, uh, going to take a break this week from our Galatians series that we've been going through. So we're going through two series till the end of the year. The first is the Galatians series. We're going to talk about the whole book of Galatians. We're going to preach it of it, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 6. We're taking a break from that, and we're going to mix it up with a, uh, a sermon series from the Doctrine for the Heart. And this is a sermon series where we're going to choose specific passages in the Bible. As you saw, that was a pretty long one, but, but hang with me. Specific passages in the, in the Bible that speaks of a particular doctrine. And then we're going to preach it hopefully in such a way um, in which we can understand how that doctrine is relevant to us and should affect our lives today. Um, and we're going to go kind of through all a bunch of verses today, back and forth. So uh, uh, PowerPoint people, thank you that you're going to stick with me as we go through all those verses. Um, and also we're, going to, we're just going to, there's going to be a lot of doctrinal explanation, but, but just hang with me. At the end, we'll see how, how it's very relevant and, and it should affect us in a, in a huge way. So, 
today we're going to talk about uh, Genesis chapter 15. And it's going to talk about a doctrine that we, along with centuries of Christians before us, says is a very extremely important doctrine. And it's important because without it, our understanding of just how much God loves us will be limited. And this doctrine is represented by a word, and that word is covenant. Now, in the Indonesian language, there is no translation for the word covenant. The closest thing we have to the word covenant is promise, janji. That's the closest thing we have. And that is a disadvantage to the church in Indonesia because now this very important doctrine is missing altogether in the fullness of it. And a whole culture without the word covenant and the concept of covenant will put a limit to our understanding of just how much God loves you, just how much, how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ for us. Let me give an illustration. Imagine a culture where the term and concept for the word marriage is non-existent. It doesn't exist. And the closest thing that culture has to describing a marriage is the word promise. Now, yes, promise is and should be a part of a healthy marriage, but the essence of marriage, on top of being just about a promise, is so much more than that, isn't it? It also communicates affection, attraction, commitment, perseverance, a little bit of annoyance, a lot of bit of annoyance, but also love, adoration, understanding, self-sacrifice. Marriage is such a rich word, and it communicates so much more than just promise. Now, how dry will your relationship with your spouse be if all the things we just mentioned above is subtracted from your relationship with them, and all your marriage amounts to is nothing else but a mere promise? Such will be the case in our relationship with God if our whole relationship with him is founded only upon the word promise. So, through our passage today, there it is, through our passage today, um, we hope to understand what God actually means by the word covenant and how that concept can make your relationship with him so much more richer. All right? We have three points uh, for today. Um, actually, one more thing. Before I enter into the sermon, let me just say one more thing. Often when we read a passage or when we listen to a sermon, we just kind of, we want application. Right? We want we want a to-do list. Like, tell me, okay, what, what am I to do? So what? Like, what's what's to do for me from the sermon, from this passage? And that's not bad. That's a good thing to ask that question. But if that's the primary thing you're looking for in this passage, it's not enough. Because God wants to change your actions, yes, but he's not satisfied with just having you doing the right kind of things. He wants you to be the right kind of person. You see? And he wants you to be the right kind of person by making you love and worship him more. And he does so not just by giving you a to-do list, but by telling you how much he's done for you. So as we enter into this text, have that in mind. If your sole interest is just application, a 10-step list, the next 30 minutes will be really frustrating for you. But if you enter it with a heart of wanting to understand just how much God really loves you and how he can be changed as a worshiper of this God, then this next 30 minutes will be very meaningful for you. We have three points for today. God's covenant with his people, God's covenant broken by his people, and God fulfilled his covenant for his people. First point, God's covenant with his people. But let, let's pray before entering to our sermon. Father, we ask you and beg you that you would give us the mental capacity um, to, to stick with this passage uh, because your word does challenge our minds. 
in a way that should affect uh, everything else in our lives. Um, Lord, and we, we beg of you and ask you that you'd give us the perseverance to do that because we know that um, your love will shine forth from it um, as we stick in it. Um, speak uh, through your passage today and let the words spoken this morning not muddy up, but clarify and illuminate your truths from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First point, God's covenant with his people. So what in the world is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship deal between two people in the Old Testament. It's a DTR, define the relationship, right? It can happen between two people or two different parties or nations. For example, a stronger king can come to a weaker king and make a covenant with them. This concept already existed in the Old Testament before God, through the Old Testament authors, used it in the Old Testament. It already existed. People already know about this concept of covenant before it was written in the Bible. And God wanted to use this pre-existing concept to explain to his people in a meaningful way just how much he loves them and what his relationship with them can be best described as. Now, there are a few aspects of a covenant that must be present for a covenant to be a covenant. There's usually a stronger party, for example, a king from a more powerful nation, And this king would make some sort of promise of deliverance and protection to a weaker king from a weaker nation. We'll call this covenant blessings. That's one thing that needs to be in the covenant, covenant blessings. And this king from a weaker nation will then, in return, commit allegiance and obedience of some sort to this greater king. This is called covenant, uh, let's call it covenant requirements. You have covenant blessing, you have covenant requirements. Now... If the weaker king fulfills these covenant requirements, the stronger king will bless the weaker king with the covenant blessings, whatever it may be. It could be protection from another country. It could be food for a time of famine, whatever it is the blessing is. Now, so there's two things, covenant blessing, covenant requirement. But there's also a third thing. There's a covenant curse. A covenant curse is a punishment that if either parties break this covenant, break this pact, They'll, be, they'll experience the curse of the covenant. And this is usually communicated by the shedding of blood. An animal would be cut in half, be spread aside, and they would say, whoever breaks the covenant will be made like these animals. It's kind of symbolism. I think, actually, I don't know if this is true or not, but the Chinese culture has something like this, where a king would cut the corner of a table and say, whoever breaks the covenant will be like this table. Similar to that, I guess. So there's, there's, there's the shedding of blood and saying that whoever breaks it will, um, will experience that. Let's look at Jeremiah 34, verse 18, as we talk about, uh, as we see where this is. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. All right? So that's the covenant curse. Okay, three things. Covenant blessing from a stronger party, covenant requirements from a weaker party, and a covenant curse if anybody breaks it. All right, why did I go through all that? Because I want to see that in our passage, all these aspects of covenant is everywhere present in it. In this first point, I want us to see how God, the greater party, makes covenant promises of blessings to Abram, the weaker party, Um, and and that is where the covenant was initiated. Look at verse 1 with me in in your handouts. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great, which is another thing that happens in covenants. The king would usually kind of kind of tell everything how great he is, what he's done. I'm great. This is what God does. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. 
your reward shall be very great. Verse 5, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse 18, to your offspring I give this land. So these are all covenant blessings that the greater party God has made to the weaker party Abram. I want us to notice and take a second something very important from the promises. There's two themes that you see over and over again from these covenant blessings. And the themes is offspring and land. Now, why does God specifically promise offspring and land? Well, because the covenant in Genesis 15 is connected to a promise God already made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Hang with me now. So before Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham. Let's look at what this promise is. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you, and I will make of you, note, a great nation. And I will bless you. See the word blessing? I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. God promised that he'll make Abram a great nation. Now, think about it. What are the two things needed to make a great nation? People and land. You see... So Genesis 15 is a continuation of the promise made in Genesis 12. He's saying, remember when I said I was going to make you a great nation? I'm making that a covenant with you right now. I will give you offspring or the people and land that is necessary to become a great nation. Okay, so God, the stronger party, um, um, blessing Abraham, the younger or the weaker party, with, with offspring and land in order to make him a great nation. Now, before we move on, I want to see also that the covenant blessings God made to Abraham in Genesis 15 applies not only to Abraham in the Old Testament, but it applies to every single one of us here today. It does. It applies to Christians today, you and I sitting here, if you're in Christ. How does it apply to us? Well, Abraham in Genesis 15, um, God tells him that the people he's talking about, the offspring he's talking about, there's two things, right? People and land. The people he's talking about, the descendants in verse 5, is specifically Israel. Israel is the descendants of Abraham, right? Uh, look at verse 5. Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall the offspring be. You're going to have so many kids, you're going to have so many people, and those and who we call now Israel, referring to Israel, the biological descendants of Abraham. Second thing, land, refers to the promised land, Canaan. It's actual physical land called Canaan. How do we get this? Look at verse 13 to 14 with me in your passage. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and, I will, be, and will be servants there. Okay, so his offspring, Israel, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and be servant theirs. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Does that ring a bell in Exodus? Israel served Egypt and was enslaved by them for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Talking about the ten plagues in Egypt. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions, which they did plunder the Egyptians as they left. And all this happened, all this came true in Exodus chapter 7 to 12. Okay, so God made true this promise. Then in 16, uh, verse 16, it says, After they're freed from Egypt, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for, their, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, the Amorites was the strongest people group in this land called Canaan. What God is saying is, you're going to be enslaved in Egypt and you're going to be freed from it. I'm going to free you from it, right, people of Israel. You have the people. You don't have the land yet. You're not a great nation yet. And then eventually, you're going to keep going, and you're going to come back to Canaan. You're going to conquer Canaan and the wicked people in there. And there, I'll give you the land that will then complete 
my promise in Genesis 12 of making you a great nation with both people and land. Following with me? Okay. So, um, we see all this happening in Exodus to Joshua. But what's interesting is that later on, I forget to research when it was. I think it's like B.C. 720 or something like that. When Israel fell. And this great nation that finally was there. We have people now. We have land. We're a great nation of Israel. We have kings, this and that. And it was destroyed by Babylon and Assyria in 720 B.C. And I think by Syria in 5-something B.C. Um, So, did God fail in his promise? Did God fail to preserve this great nation that he said he will make Abraham into? No, he didn't. It's because... The true people and the true land is not just Israel, but it's the church. And it's not just Canaan, it's heaven. That's how it applies to us today. Let's look at the New Testament. And as we see that this historical redemption of Israel from slavery to the promised land is foreshadowing God's people today from our slavery of sin to heaven. Okay, look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Talking about Genesis 12, right? He went out of Ur. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Listen to this. For he was looking forward to to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This true city is not Canaan. The true city Canaan is foreshadowing is a city whose foundations and designer and builder is God. What is this city? Let's look at Revelations 21, verses 1 to 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The true promised land in the Old Testament, Canaan, is a foreshadowing to heaven. The slavery that Israel left out of Egypt in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the Christian's deliverance out of out of the slavery of sin to the promised land, heaven. And let's confirm this again. Not only do we see that Canaan is actually a foreshadowing of heaven, that that's the true promised land, but also who are the true descendants of Abram? Are they the biological children? of? Is it just for Israel? Well, the Bible doesn't say so. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 6, 9, and 14. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, It's not just the biological Israel. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed, blessed, covenant blessing, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So when God's talking about giving Abraham descendants, he's not just talking about the biological children of Israel. He's talking about everyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. They're the spiritual descendants of Abraham. You see, land is not just Canaan, it is heaven. People is not just Israel, it is all who are of faith in Christ Jesus. The covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 15 applies very much so to us here today. All right. Now, um, this is a little scary for us. Because think about it. If the covenant blessings God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 applies to us today, what about the covenant curse? What about the covenant requirements? Do we have some kind of requirement that we must obey God in order to be in order to be in order to receive the covenant blessings of the promised land? 
Does that apply to us today as well? Remember earlier I said that receiving the covenant blessings from the greater party is contingent upon the fulfillment of the covenant requirements from the weaker party, who is us in this case. Did Abraham complete it? Have we completed it? Now keep track with me in our second point. This is really important. Because if the covenant of blessings, if the covenant blessings of Genesis 15 applies to us today, then the covenant curses apply to us as well. And these have eternal implications for us. So let's treat this with the weight it deserves. Second point. God's covenant broken by his people. Okay, so we've seen the, the covenant blessing of, of God giving Abraham the weaker party and the covenant requirements Abraham is needing to fulfill, but where do we see the covenant requirements in our passage? We don't, I don't really see it anywhere in there. Well, it is there. It's just not as obvious. All right. Abraham must trust and obey God. That's the covenant requirements. He must trust and obey God that God will be the one to deliver him and make him a great nation. And he is not allowed to be disobedient to God in trusting himself in making it happen for his own, in his own time, in his own way, apart from the means of God. Saying, I'm the one who will make you great. Trust me. Where do we get this? Well, we have to look at this, at this passage in context. All right. Look at verse 1 with me. Okay, so, so the covenant requirement is trust and obedience. Look at verse 1. It starts with, after these things. Okay, when you see that in a passage, you have to ask yourself the question, after what things? It, it leads you to the previous chapter, right? So we look at Genesis 14, where Abram was offered money by the king of Sodom, a country known for their evil ways. So the story in Genesis 14 is this, before Genesis 15. The king of Sodom lost a war. Uh, another nation came and, and took all of his possessions and all of his people. And among the people of Sodom, you can read this in Genesis 14 later if you want, and among the people of Sodom that was captured, there was a guy named Lot, and Lot was Abram's nephew. Now Abraham wanted to save Lot, so he pursued this country that defeated Sodom to save Lot, and Abraham beat them. So Abraham came back with the possessions and the people that belonged to King Sodom because he beat the other nation that took it from him. Does that make sense? So he's coming back with Lot and with everybody, and he's going back to Sodom, and, and as a reward, King Sodom wanted to give Abram the goods that he won back. Look at Genesis 14, verse 21 and 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, after Abram returned with his people and possessions, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So get, take the goods, you can take it for you. But Abram said to King Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, which means that I've made a commitment to God, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say... I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. What he's saying is this. The Lord has promised me to make, a great, make me a great nation. I will not dishonor him by taking the money from an evil king and use that money to make myself a great nation. I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll just break even. I'll take whatever my men deserves and they'll eat it, but not, not a cent more. Lest you say that you're the one who made me great. No, no. God is the one who will make me great. If I use the riches of a wicked king to make myself into a great nation, that's a lack of faith. The Lord is the one who will do that, not a wicked king. And, and then our passage comes in. Genesis 15, chapter 1. After these things happened, God came to Abraham and said, Fear not, Abraham. Confirming it. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Why will Abraham's reward be great? Because he has trusted and obeyed God and not dishonored God by taking the money of an evil king to accomplish what God has said he will accomplish. 
Now, if we're not convinced that there's a covenant requirement in Genesis 15 based on Genesis 14, let's look at one more passage, uh, one more chapter. Let's look forward to Genesis 22. You'll see another continuation of this covenant in Genesis 22. I'm not going to get into the story, but here, once again, Abram was tested by God, and, and he passed the test. We have to get into the story. And then God affirms again the covenant blessings that he promised Abram in Genesis 15. Look at the language. You'll see the words blessings and offsprings and gates of enemies, which is land, again, over and over again. Genesis 22, 15 to 18. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. See? Covenant requirement. Because you have done this, because you've done something, I will because you passed the test, I will surely bless you. Covenant blessing. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, again, repeating the language in Genesis 15, as a sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, land, offspring and land. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. That's the requirement. Abraham, Abraham's blessing is contingent upon obeying and trusting that God will do it, and he's not going to do it with his own means, disobedient to God. Now, here's a million-dollar question. Does this covenant requirement apply to us today? If the covenant blessings, as we've seen, does apply to Christians today, as it, as it released the, heaven, to the, to the promised land of heaven, does the covenant requirements of Abraham uh, affect us as well? Does it apply to us? I would say yes. Hold on, I'll get to grace later. But for now, follow with me, and we have to feel the full tension of this. Yes, it does apply to us. Remember the uh, verse that we talked about, confession of sins earlier? Uh, we talked about uh, uh, New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 10. We said, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. We can't even fail at one point. We have to trust and obey God perfectly. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Sounds like requirements to me. And they are. And you know what this should do to us? God is saying our salvation, our deliverance, our receiving of this promised land covenant blessing is dependent upon our obedience and trust to him. You know what this should do to us? It should freak us out. It really should. Because no human being can do this. No one can accomplish this. Look closely at our passage. Even Abraham didn't actually accomplish this. Yes, in Genesis 14 with, with King Sodom, and yes, in Genesis 22, he passed the test. But look at verse 2 and verse 3 in our passage. He doubted God. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. See, there's a shred of doubt. He's saying that, um, I'm just going to trust on second best. Eliezer, who is the son of my servant, he'll just be my offspring because I don't really trust that you'll follow through in your, in your commitment. He failed. Look at verse 7 to 8. God said, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, he fluctuated in his faith. He didn't, he didn't trust and obey God fully. And even worse, in Genesis 16, you see Abraham and his wife Sarai couldn't wait to receive the offspring that God promised them. And Sarai and Abraham decided to have Abraham commit adultery with a servant. You know what? I can't wait for God to follow through because we're kind of getting old. So I'm, I'm getting scared. Just, just have a son with another woman. Just commit adultery. Let's just trust our own means. 
to accomplish what God said that he would. See, even Abraham did not complete the covenant requirements. And friends, is this not a representation of our own trust and obedience to God? How we, just like Abraham, our trust in God fluctuates. Do we not often disobey him and trust upon our own means, contrary to what God has said in his word, to receive for ourselves the covenant blessings he's promised? Haven't we done this? The, the covenant blessings of the promised land, like, like peace and joy and satisfaction and acceptance and rest, have we not tried to seek those things by our own strength, disobedient to what God has said we can and can't do? And this usually happens in a time of anxiety, doesn't it? When, 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 when things are getting stressful, like Abraham, I'm getting old. I'm getting old. I've got to do something. I can't wait for God any longer. I've got to do it in my own way, in my own timing. Doesn't it happen? When God calls us to have integrity in our business practices, have we always trusted and obeyed God, even when it's costly to us? Or do we see covenant blessing of peace and security that we will receive in heaven by earning riches, even though it's done contrary to his word? When in our dating relationships, God says, pursue and prioritize holiness, have we always trusted him and obeyed him? Or have we used our own means to acquire the covenant blessings of satisfaction, affirmation, acceptance, apart from his will? When we decide of how to spend our money, do we do so in a way that is in line with this will? Or do we spend it excessively, wanting to earn the covenant blessings of approval or maybe comfort through our own ways? Or when we decide to save our money, fathers, do we do it in light of his will? Or do we excessively hoard it in such a way that we want to secure for ourselves the covenant blessings of security and peace apart from his will? Seeking approval, comfort, acceptance, peace, joy, these are great things. And God wants it for us, but we often do it in our own way, not in line with God's word and his timing. Now, I'm sure what we said earlier in our confession of sin, it, it struck a chord with, with, I'm sure, at least everyone here. When you should guide me, I instead control myself. When you're sovereign, I instead rule myself. When you've promised to take care of me, I instead suffice myself. When I should submit to your providence, I follow my own will. When I should study, love, honor, trust you, instead serve myself. I change and correct your laws to suit myself. We all, we all can relate to one of those things. And this underlying guilt we all have, this gut feeling that tells you you're not good enough, because none of us are, is caused because we all have broken the covenant requirements of that will get us into this promised land. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Even the good things we do are like polluted garments because they're done for a wrong motive. So, what hope is there then for us? How can Abraham receive this promised land? How can we, who have betrayed God and broken his covenant requirements, also receive this promised land? And in the seemingly, seemingly hopelessness, friends, will the concept of covenant come to life for us? So stick with me one more point. Because if we truly grasp this point, you and I hopefully will understand just how amazing God's covenantal love is for his people. Point number three, God fulfilling his covenant for his people. Remember when we listed earlier the aspects of a covenant, there's a stronger, greater party who promises blessings to a weaker party, right? And if everything works well, we don't have to go through the covenant curse, but if somebody breaks this, 
they need to be cursed. And this is signifying by the shedding of animal blood, symbolizing that whoever breaks a covenant will be made like these animals. And to see God's love for us, we must see where this covenant curse is in our text and also the significance of it. So look at our, the handout again, verses 9 to 10. He, God, said to him, Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. This is the shedding of blood. This is the covenant curse that's symbolized. For God made a pact with Abraham that whoever breaks it will be made like this. Okay. But think about it. It's interesting. If this covenant curse is true, then should not Abraham have been killed? If this covenant curse is true, then should not we have been killed and be made like these animals? Should we then never enter the promised land and receive the covenant blessings? The answer is in verse 17. How can we resolve this tension? Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, it's kind of cryptic, but fire pot and flaming torch is often God's way of, um, of, of showing his glory and his presence in, 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 in the Old Testament. For example, when uh, the Israelites walk in the night of the desert, there's a pillar of fire. Uh, Abraham with a burning bush. Uh, Mount Sinai being engulfed in flames. Those are all representations of God and his glory. So when, when fire and flaming, a flaming torch walk through these animal pieces, it is God that walked through these animal pieces. What do you think God is saying here? Why didn't Abraham pass through the animal pieces? Why didn't God with Abraham pass through that? Like, they could have both done it, right? It applies to both of them. Why was it only God that passed through the covenant, I mean, the, the animal pieces? Because here the all-powerful God is saying, Abram, I know you will break the covenant. Christians, I know you will break the covenant continually over and over and over again. And we all deserve to be cursed. Abraham, you do. Christians, you do. But instead, I will pass through this covenant curse alone without you because I'm committing and I'm swearing to myself that I will take the covenant curse that was meant for you upon myself. So, when did this happen? When did God blood the shed, uh, shed the blood? When did God shed the blood of this covenant curse to us. Hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27 and 28. At the Last Supper, he poured wine. He distributed it to his disciples. And he took a cup. And we had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cross is when God fulfilled this covenant promise, when he took upon himself the covenant curse that we deserve. But wait, that, that was Jesus, right? That wasn't the Old Testament God that spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15. You know, one of the most common names God chose to describe, him, describe himself in the Old Testament is the phrase, I am. He says that a lot. <laughs> we had a game about this last night. It's kind of funny. Um, and you see, you see the phrase twice in this passage in Genesis 15. If you, if you read it again in your, in your handouts, and you'll see God saying it twice in relation to describing himself. Verse 1, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Then again in verse 7, I am the Lord. 
Then more explicitly again, in Exodus chapter 3, when God spoke to Moses, um, this is the conversation that happened. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is your name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, look at the way Jesus describes himself in John chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Friends, Jesus is much more than a moral teacher. He's much more than a, than a good theologian. He's much more than a kind person. He's all those things. But friends, Jesus is God who became man to take the covenant curse upon himself. He is the same God that walked through those animal pieces in Genesis 15, who swore to take the curse of the covenant that is due to us upon himself. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Hear the covenant theme here. So that Christ, in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Remember I said earlier that our salvation is dependent upon perfect obedience to the law, that our salvation is dependent upon and contingent upon us fulfilling the covenant um, of requirements. And it is. It's just somebody else did it for us. You see, Jesus fulfilled it. He obeyed God perfectly. And he gave, that, he gave the reward of the covenant of works to us. Now, be careful when you're quickly to say that salvation is free. It is free for you, but it costs Jesus a whole bunch, his own life. A uh, quick analogy, a friend of ours in the U.S. lent a car to somebody else, and this, this guy absolutely wrecked it, destroyed it. Um, and he called our friend, and he said, I'm so sorry that I, that I ruined your car. Like, it's totaled. I mean, it was worth more selling its pieces than, than fixing it. Um, and our friend, being the love and, loving and kind person she is, says, that's okay. I forgive you. Oh, oh, so it's free? Yeah, it's free. You don't, you don't have to pay anything. That's true. The, the person didn't pay anything. But who paid? My friend did, right? She now has to buy another car, or, or the insurance will. But somebody will pay. There's no such thing as free forgiveness. Jesus said, I forgive you, and it's free for you, but I will pay. And this is why Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 can say, and the scripture foreseeing, listen to this, in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Genesis 15, Genesis 12, this covenant with Abraham is all about the gospel. It points to Jesus. Friends, after the sermon, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. And the Bible says this should be done in a special way. Partake it in an understanding of this covenant fulfillment. When, when we break the bread before us, be reminded of the covenant curse of when God walked through those animal pieces that was broken and split apart before him. That he has sworn upon you, in his, even in our disobedience, he will take upon himself the covenant curse. And as we pour the wine, we're reminded of the blood of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, which we can enjoy assurance of the promised land because he hath paid the cost for our failure.
And after the communion, we're going to sing a hymn. And as we sing it, I want us to ponder upon the covenant love that we just learned. Especially the term, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And after that, you're going to leave. You're going to go about your day and your week like normal. But I pray that as you go, your understanding of just how crazy God is for you has increased. And that if you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, I want you to be more assured of his commitment to you. It's not just based on a promise. It's based upon a covenant. Immerse yourself in this love and let it change not just what you do, but who you are. Father, Lord, what an amazing God who has given himself for our sins and the curses meant for us. In this covenant love, you have given us your all. And Lord, now as we respond to you and as we partake of the communion and as we sing of this covenant love, Father, I pray and I beg you that you make it more real in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for this. And let us continue in this time in worship in the gospel, and this covenant love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, communion is a special time for believers. It is more than just symbolism, but the Bible tells us that Christ, through the Spirit, is especially present here, as we're reminded of his gospel and nurtured by his grace. I also want to remind us of one thing. This is very important. That this table, this bread and this wine, does not belong to Covenant City Church. It belongs to every Christian everywhere who has put their faith in Christ Jesus. But the Bible does tell us that if you have not yet placed your faith in Christ Jesus, if you not yet have acknowledged that you're a, a sinner in desperate need of the saving grace of Christ, the Bible says do not partake in the bread and wine as a blood and flesh of Christ. So, so, so if you are still looking into Christianity, wanting to figure more out about it, and have not yet called yourself he or she who is saved by Christ, just let the elements pass by you um, and, 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 and just um, um, and wait for us in that time. Also, if you have kids here uh, that, that they not have yes, yet uh, professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, um, I would leave it to your discernment whether or not um, um, you would uh, impart it to them as well. But if they have, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, no matter how old you are, you shall partake in his blood and in his flesh. So um, I'll pray here in a second, and the ushers will pass the trays. So take a piece of bread and a, and a wine. And if, if some of you are abstaining from alcohol or have something against drinking alcohol, we have grape juice up front. So just raise your hand, and you can get grape juice. Um, but um, um, as the ushers uh, come by, just, just take a, a, a thing of wine, take a bread, and then don't immediately eat it. Okay, wait, wait so we can take it together later. Um, I'll give us time to kind of take it together. And I'll, and I'll pray uh, right now as the ushers get ready to, to pass the elements. Um, um, but wait for the prayer. Yeah. Father, we thank you again for this time. And Lord, now as we um, uh, partake in this uh, uh, communion, that we may remember the blood of the new covenant shed for our sins. And let this be a time meaningful as we are nurtured by this special means of grace um, as it reminds us of the gospel. We stand and pray. Amen. Thank you.
has anybody not received the bread and wine um, and wants to partake in it? The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. And after supper, saying, This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We will enter now into a time of personal prayer, silent prayer, um, and then we're going to sing a song of response. And in the posture of worship, as you eat the bread and drink the wine, I encourage you to, uh, in this general time frame between the silent prayer or during the song, whatever in that time frame, um, um, go before the Lord and take um, a partake in it in your own time. Uh, so, so feel free to partake in it. You don't have to wait for my instructions. Feel free to partake in it any time between the prayer and the song. I'll pray us, enter us into a time of silent confession or a silent time of prayer, and then the music team will, will lead us into music. Father, Lord, we are so thankful um, that you have instituted this covenant with us. And Lord, as we remember you and your gospel, Father, nurture us. Help us worship and love you more than anything else this world has to offer. Let us trust upon you that you will deliver us. And Lord, that doesn't only apply in how much we should refrain from doing things you told us not to do, but it also should bring our obedience into perspective. That if we obey you because we want to earn for ourselves a covenant promise, then that is a form of lack of trust. If we want to do good things over and over and over again so that we can somehow secure our salvation, that is a form of lack of trust. Uh, we know that you have done it all, and you said it is finished on that cross. Why should I gain from your reward? I cannot give an answer. Thank you, Father, for this love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now we enter into a time of silent prayer.